This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another episode of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G Sampath. Подразделение ЧВК Вагнер практически окружили Бахмут. The Wagner Group has been at the forefront of Russian gains in eastern Ukraine, especially in the battle around the town of Bakhmut. It was also in the news over attempts by members of the U.S. Congress to label it as a foreign terrorist organization or FTO. The Wagner Group currently is classified uh, by the U.S. as a transnational criminal organization, which is at a lower level of uh, infamy, so to speak. But strangely enough, the Biden administration is opposed to labeling the Wagner Group as an FTO for various reasons. And in another related development, President Vladimir Putin has just signed a new law criminalizing the spreading of, within quotes, fake or discrediting information about Wagner units fighting in the Ukraine. So what exactly is the Wagner Group? Is it a group of mercenary soldiers? Is it a private military company? What was it up to in different parts of the world over the past decade? And what has been its role so far in the Ukraine war? We take a close look at this shadowy outfit in this episode of InFocus. And we have with us Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's international affairs editor. Stanley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ambad. Thanks for having me once again. So, Stanley, the Wagner Group uh, first made news, uh, if you remember, during... Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. As many as 20,000 Russian soldiers have been on the move across Crimea in the past. Is that Russian soldiers have been going up to various Ukrainian bases and trying to take them over. When there were these soldiers who were being referred to as the little green men because of the uniforms, and later it was speculated that they were uh, they were Russian, but not Russian uh, army, but the Wagner Group. Uh, militia or mercenaries. So can you give us a quick overview of the Wagner Group's background, origins? It's probably been linked to an oligarch. Can you talk a little bit about how, where it came from? This is a relatively new uh, private military organization, you know, relatively new in a sense, as you pointed out, they emerged in 2014. You know, if you trace the roots of Wagner uh, in 2012, when Putin was the Prime Minister of Russia, he was asked in the Duma by a lawmaker, by a deputy, on the possibility of forming a private military organization. And then Putin said that, I understand your question, and I think that this is indeed a tool for realizing national interest without the direct participation of the state. That's what he said. And then in 2014, you see Wagner was emerging against the context of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia's annexation of uh, Crimea. Uh, so, uh, uh, interestingly, in Russia, you can't form a private military company because in Russia, the, you know, the, the security business is a state monopoly. But at the same time, public enterprises can have security agencies or companies private military companies that are registered abroad, uh, you know, are allowed to operate inside the Kremlin, only if, you know, depending on the Kremlin's ties with these military organizations, private military organizations. I think Wagner is one of them. 
so there, there is a bit of gray area on Magna. We don't know where it is registered. So almost everybody who uh, has written about Wagner says that it is not a registered company inside Russia. And Wagner doesn't even have a you know official website. They occasionally use different internet platforms for recruitment. But doesn't uh, doesn't Wagner have an office now? I mean, I saw I remember seeing it uh, somewhere that they have an office in Saint Petersburg and all that. Yeah, they might have, but they are not registered. The company is not registered in Russia. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah, and uh, also, no, yeah, of course, uh, off late, they are much more open. Now they have an office. Now Prigozhin is coming on uh, TV. Uh, he is also giving regular updates on Telegram. This was not the case when Wagner actually emerged. Prigozhin himself had dismissed any links with the group multiple times uh, during the initial years. So uh, this is, and uh, on Google, if you, uh, you know, if you type Wagner PMC, the first link that surfaces on Google is, Stop Wagner website, which is an anti-Wagner website. So they don't have a, an official website, but they have Telegram channels linked with the group. So it's 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 basically a shadowy organization, and uh, uh, and uh, Prigozhin is now the face of Wagner. You know he is everywhere, but the man who actually founded Wagner was uh, uh, Dmitry Utkin. Dmitry Utkin was a lieutenant colonel uh, in the GRU, Russia's military intelligence. And uh, Utkin's story is, uh, um, you know, as per the European Union, uh, you know, uh, European Commission, which uh, had imposed sanctions on uh, Wagner, had released a paper on Utkin, a document that says he was he was a lieutenant colonel, and then he, after his retirement, he joined this private military group called Moran Security, which is founded by Russians you know, uh, and uh, mm, uh, registered elsewhere. And then he would move to Slavonic Cops. Slavonic Cops was registered in uh, Hong Kong, again, founded by Russian nationalists. And the Slavonic Cops uh, had been deployed in Syria in 2013. This is two years ahead of Putin's decision, formal decision to send troops to Syria at the beginning of the civil war. And uh, the deployment was disastrous. Slavonic cops lost their men. I mean, also in the initial five years of the civil war, the Syrians took heavy losses because everybody had ganged up against them. It was a Russian intervention that turned around the civil war in 2015. So in, in 2013, Slavonic cops deployment in Syria, they suffered losses and they had to pull back. And in 2014, Dmitry Utkin formed Wagner as a new private military organization. And he wanted to train, uh, you know, former uh, Russian military men. And apparently, according to one account, Prigozhin, Prigozhin was, you know, the Kremlin caterer, the rising tycoon. And Prigozhin agreed to finance Wagner. And Wagner is apparently named after Richard Wagner, the 19th century German composer. Uh, Utkin's call sign was Wagner when, while he was in service. And here, Prigozhin agrees to finance the group. And according to one account, Prigozhin goes to the Russian Defense Ministry, and he was demanding, uh, you know, um, land, Defense Ministry land, and other kind of assistance to set up training facilities. And the Russian bureaucracy was fighting back, resisting. And Prigozhin told them that the order came from Papa. Papa, he was referring to Mr. Putin. He was having very good ties with Putin. Uh, you know, uh, he is still, he has very warm, close ties with the Kremlin. So then Prigozhin gets what he wanted. 
you get support from the defense ministry. They were, they set up the private military uh, company. They got land to train uh, their uh, private soldiers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then once Putin annexes Crimea, following what the West and uh, the Ukrainians call the Maidan Revolution, uh, you know that opens up a new opportunity for the freshly set up private military company. Uh, as you pointed out in the introduction, the Russians had de denied those days that they hadn't deployed any troops to Ukraine, but the little green men were there. And the little green men, green men came from uh, Wagner. This is exactly what Mr. Putin said in Duma in 2012, that you can realize within court national interest without actually committing your state troops. Right. So uh, that's, that's a very uh, detailed uh, timeline of uh, how it came into existence, you know, culminating in its successful uh, deployment in Crimea. Now, since 2014, up to the present, the Wagner Group uh, hasn't only been in Crimea, they've been busy in other places. Uh, Western reports suggest that uh, they have been active in several African, African countries, including Mali, the Central African Republic, Burkina Faso, Sudan, and so on. And especially in, in a place like Central African Republic, for instance, the reports indicate that in exchange for mining concessions, or what they call guarding the diamond mines and gold mines, uh, and probably getting uh, some kind of rights to uh, extract and use uh, those resources, they offer muscle power and protection to usually authoritarian governments, which have uh, weak militaries, militaries too weak to control rebels and rebellions and so on. So is that the business model of the Wagner Group? Uh, I mean, uh, supplying armed forces in exchange for resource extraction? So uh, I think it's not only about resource extraction. Resources may be part of the deal. Uh, because, But I think the larger uh, you know, objective of Wagner, I think we should understand that this is closely linked with the crumbling. So especially in African countries, which are resource-rich, but also conflict-ridden, uh, where the governments of the day fail to stabilize or struggling to stabilize their country, so they need some kind of external backers. And see, I mean, the West did the same thing, right? Uh, France, French troops were there in Mali for years until recently, until the French, uh, until the most recent Mali government asked the French to get out. So uh, the French uh, have been trying to stabilize Mali, fight back uh, the jihadists, etc., etc., but they failed to do it after years. And then that opens opportunity for companies like Wagner. And for the Kremlin, this is an opportunity to send Wagner to faraway regions in Africa and offer the Russian services to the strongmen in those countries and buy influence in return and without, without actually sending Russian troops. So this is the model I think the Russians and the Wagnerites are following. And Wagner, you know, in, in Central African Republic uh, or in other places, their, their operations were brutal but result-oriented. So that, I think, prompted other countries like Mali, uh, you know, uh, to turn to Wagner. Uh, Mali, Mozambique, Burkina Faso, uh, Libya, Sudan, Chad, Cameroon. So they have troops across the African countries. So I think uh, resource extraction is a very, uh, you know, uh, narrow way of looking at it. But the larger goal is that the Kremlin is trying to extend its influence through Wagner deployments in a very important continent in Africa. 
I think that is the business model. Business model, in a sense, Wagner is getting business. The Kremlin is uh, getting some kind of geopolitical influence, also some voice in those countries. And the Russian companies might be uh, uh, getting resources as well, business as well. Right. It's a combination of uh, profits for uh, the Wagner Group as a company or as a, as a, as a private uh, corporation and uh, buying of influence for the Kremlin in the political slash uh, geostrategic space. Now, moving on to the current scenario, I mean, we've seen how they've operated in Africa. You spoke about Mali, where uh, they were helping the government fight uh, rebels and insurgents. And in Central Africa, they've been guarding mines and showing up a weak military. But in Ukraine, the Wagner group uh, seems to have sort of changed tack. Whereas in Africa, I think, Till the time they were only in Africa and maybe Venezuela, they had a strength of about 5,000, 6,000 troops. But in Ukraine, their strength seems to have ballooned to about 50,000, according to some reports. And from from being an outfit that was sort of dominated by military veterans, they seem to have uh, switched to being a, some kind of a cannon fodder outfit with 90% of them recruited from uh, prisons. So is there a change in the profile of the Wagner Group, specifically both in terms of composition and goals in Ukraine? Do you agree uh, with this broad narrative? So, uh, I, you know, the broad narrative is we have to, I think, uh, take it with a pinch of salt. Why? Because uh, it is difficult to get exact numbers about Wagner. So it is. this is a shadowy organization. We have some information. But exact numbers are very difficult because I think most of this, uh, especially after the war began, most of these details we get are from Western intelligence uh, agencies. For example, British intelligence issues regular updates about, uh, about the war. Uh, but Western intelligence agencies are a party to the conflict. They want, of course, uh, Ukraine to win. So the flow of information coming from them, I think, uh, I, I doubt whether we can accept it at face value. So that is one thing. Secondly, uh, is Wagner recruiting from prisons? I think, yes, they are, because uh, uh, there is there was a video that emerged last year, which was actually released by the team of Alexei Navalny, in which uh, Prigozhin was seen talking to inmates in a Russian prison, uh, asking them to join uh, Wagner uh, and promising in return freedom after six months of military service. Interestingly, Prigozhin tells them only three people can take you out of the prison. Allah, God, and me. The first two will take you out in a wooden box while I can take you out alive. Uh, so he is recruiting people from prison. Uh, is Wagner using them uh, as cannon fodder? Again, there were reports that uh, you know Wagner was using waves of uh, uh, humans, throwing them into blackmots, meat grinder, etc., etc. Uh, so what we know is that uh, you know the conflict in Bakhmut, which Wagner is leading, uh, is uh, ha- is having high human casualties on both sides, which is true. The Russians have lost. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers. The Ukrainians had also lost uh, thousands of soldiers. And what is happening now is that, uh, despite the losses, the Wagnerites are making incremental and steady advances in Bakhmut. The Ukrainians are losing the city for all practical purposes. Both sides are taking losses. It is an intense uh, fight. Both sides are suffering heavy casualties. 
you can say, I mean, for the sake of an argument, you can say that both sides are using soldiers as cannon fodder. And at the end of the day, Wagnerites are making advances. That's what we can see. They took Solidar in uh, January. And last month, they took uh, the eastern part of uh, uh, Bakhmut city. Uh, the Ukrainian troops were forced to withdraw to the western ba bank of Bakhmutta River. And now the Wagnerites are, uh, you know, making slow advances from north, west, and southeast to encircle the city. So only one highway, which is Chasivia, uh, all highways except Chasivia are now controlled by Bakhmut. So this highway is the Ukrainian troops link with their supply lines outside beyond the city. And you see, including, I mean, most of Ukraine's allies, including the US, uh, you know, US Defense Secretary himself, were asking Ukraine to pull back troops from Bakhmut because this is a lost battle. So what we know is that Wagner is making results, at least in Bakhmut. It is slow, but at the same, and it, it has heavy casualties. Their tactics are brutal, definitely. They face serious accusations of uh, rights violations, et cetera, et cetera but they make results. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, I think in a war, uh, war would be remembered by uh, uh, the gain of uh, uh, territories, not uh, in terms of the loss of men. Right. So you just uh, talked about how uh, in Bakhmut, uh, the Wagner group has been leading the Russian offensive and making incremental gains. Now, do you see any clear pattern in terms of division of labor between the Wagner group and official Russian forces in the Ukraine war? I mean, is it like this Wagner group is supposed to do certain kinds of things which might involve higher rates of casualties, whereas the Russian troops are more uh, in a more protective area? Is there anything like that? Or do you see any pattern? Um, uh, we can't say. I, I'm not sure. I think uh, uh, since the focal point of uh, the conflict now is Bakhmut, and the Wagnerites are leading the battle for Bakhmut, they are suffering heavy casualties. And as I said earlier, the Ukrainians are also suffering heavy casualties. And in the initial stage of the war, the Russians, even regular Russian troops, had also taken heavy casualties. And Ukrainians apparently recently, uh, Politico reported that uh, uh, more than 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed and uh, many more uh, were uh, incapacitated during the war. This was the first account uh, based on Western intelligence estimates. That suggests that Ukraine, which whose army is only a size, only a fraction of the Russian uh, mobilization, has taken uh, disastrous uh, losses on their ranks. And they, they lost, including uh, some of their uh, heavily trained troops, most advanced troops. So I think uh, uh, it is since the war is now focused on Bakhmut and uh, uh, Wagner is leading the fight, uh, they are taking, I mean, casualties are on the higher side. Regarding the division of labor, I don't know. It's very difficult to get the exact details about these things. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be some kind of uh, rift between Wagner and the Russian Defense Ministry, going by uh, the statements uh, which Prigozhin uh, himself is issuing, because he is attacking uh, the Defense Ministry officials. Uh, the general, Russian generals. It is very, very interesting. Uh, because you see, from the war began, 
Roshah had. He, he has been saying that they are not giving him enough ammunition, ammunition. and all that, right? Yeah, that's what he's saying. He says they are not giving him enough ammunition. And Prigozhin, uh, as well as Ramzan Kadyrov of uh, uh, Chechnya, both of them had also attacked the uh, generals, indirectly targeting Shoigu himself, the defense minister, that the way they are conducting the war, uh, you know, at- attacking the way they are conducting the war. Uh, so uh, there, there seems to be some kind of tension between uh, Wagner and the defense ministry. But if the defense ministry says that, okay, Wagner is involved in the fight in Bakhmut, but regular Russian troops are also involved because they are providing all kinds of supports to Wagner and ensure that, uh, you know, uh, a proper supply of ammunition and other uh, weapons uh, to Wagner. That's what the defense ministry narrative is. But yes, uh, uh, you know, going by Prigozhin statements, there is some kind of tension is there. And, you know, uh, Putin, uh, it, it's interesting how Putin is looking at it because uh, there were three commanders for Putin's special military operation within courts since the war began, right? So it began with one and then Surokin took over and now Gerasimo, who is the uh, head of the Russian military, is in charge of, is also overseeing the special military operation. But Putin hasn't touched Prigozhin, despite Prigozhin raising objections, criticizing the generals and Russia's military establishment. So this clearly suggests that uh, the Wagner chief has the backing of the Kremlin. So maybe Putin wants both. So he 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 uh, he's okay with some kind of controlled tensions between the two. Uh, but it is, I think, clear that uh, Prigozhin has the backing of the Kremlin, and that's why he is attacking uh, the generals. I think the sense I am getting is that you know the expectation in uh, Russia when they launched the war was to wrap it up quickly. That didn't happen. That created some kind of uh, anger towards the military establishment within uh, the power circles. So that is what uh, Prigozhin is trying to cash in on. And this also opened up opportunity for Wagner, and Wagner is trying to seize that in Bakhmut. And uh, in you know, uh, um, ever since the Russians were forced to withdraw from Kherson and uh, uh, Kharkiv, the only military gains they made were in Solenar and Bakhmut, and those two were made by the Wagnerites. So Prigozhin is uh, you know trying to sell a narrative that the regular Russian troops uh, failed to defend the gains, whereas Wagner is trying to make new gains in the world. Uh, so yes, I think some tension is there. That's the sense we get. Right. And I suppose some of this tension could also be to do with uh, Prigozhin's own ambitions, where he might be trying to capitalize uh, both on his proximity to Putin and the fact that he's delivering results, uh, which the regular army has not been able to deliver, and probably propelling his own uh, political capital and, uh, and and sort of sphere of influence within the Russian political circles. Yeah, it's possible because uh, he has risen so fast in the last six months, uh, last six to seven months. You know, uh, he was he has always been active in a sense. He was an insider, uh, the, the the man who started as a hot dog seller in Saint Petersburg, sometime in the 1990s after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, is one of the most powerful men in today's Russia. So that transformation is very interesting. And even after he, you know, he helped, he co-found, uh, he helped co-found Wagner. He remained in the shadows, but the war gave him an opportunity to emerge out of the shadows. He's now in the public. He's now the face of the Wagner group, 
So that gives him a stage. And he is, uh, you know, uh, um, he is very much on that stage now. He is giving regular updates like a commander uh, through his Telegram channels. He is giving interviews to Russian media. Uh, so he knows that as long as he has the support of the Kremlin, lateral power centers like the defense ministry, generals, etc., etc., cannot touch him. So he is the man of the moment uh, in, in one sense. Uh, so he may have political ambitions as well. Right. Now, coming uh, to the larger uh, scheme of things uh, with the U.S., now there was a move uh, from the American Congress to label the Wagner Group as a foreign uh, terrorist organization. Uh, and, 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 and one could possibly argue that what it does, uh, especially in a places like Mali, where it is sort of uh, doing uh, a lot of uh, alleged human rights abuses and violations, it could be compared to a terrorist organization, except that in Wagner's case, there is clearly a profit motive as well. But uh, strangely, the Biden administration has been reluctant uh, to label it as, an, as a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, so what exactly is at stake here? Why this hesitation? Because once that labeling happens, then it would automatically make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, so to speak, which would bring in its own uh, set of uh, ways of sort of uh, going after Russia for the West. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Yes, I think the Western uh, reports suggest that the Biden administration is reluctant to name uh, Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, to begin with, Wagner faces a lot of human rights abuses, uh, you know, especially in Africa. In Central African Republic, there were UN reports showing that Russian uh, entities had committed, uh, uh, you know, excesses, etc., uh, etc., uh, and also in Ukraine, there were videos. Recently, one video emerged, uh, a Ukrainian soldier was being executed in cold blood. And uh, one Wagner deserter uh, was brutally murdered. Uh, and the Prigozhin himself was seen justifying the killing of the deserter, saying that it's a lesson for everybody, etc., etc. So there are there is a dark side to Wagner. It faces a lot of human rights allegations. And some of those reports are credible too. Uh, but when it comes to designating Wagner as a terrorist organization, the thing is that most of these military, private military organizations who are involved in conflict face similar uh, allegations. That is one thing. And then secondly, specifically in the case of Wagner, if you name this as a foreign terrorist organization, the governments that have employed Wagner deployed Wagner in their theaters would be forced to take action against this group. So, uh, for example, imagine that the Biden administration names Wagner as an FTO. So all these African countries, Sudan, Libya, Central African Republic, Mozambique, Mali, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Chad, etc., etc., all of them would immediately be forced to take action against Wagner or severe ties with Wagner. So, and Wagner in some of these countries, especially in Central African Republic, Mali and Burkina Faso, which are faced with uh, internal uh, trouble, serious internal trouble, they are dependent on Wagner to a certain extent. So they can't cut ties with Wagner. If they are cutting ties with Wagner, these countries would further plunge into chaos. And if they don't cut ties with Wagner, uh, it would be difficult for the Biden administration to continue their business with these countries. So in a sense, these African countries would be uh, you know, uh, uh, left in a very precarious, very difficult situation. 
and it would also turn them further away from the Biden administration, from the United States. Uh, so from a geopolitical point of view, terming Wagner a foreign terrorist organization uh, would be challenging for the United States at this point of time, because Wagner has already spread its influence across African countries. So I think rather than Ukraine, it is the question of Africa uh, that is preventing the Biden administration from naming Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization, because it would be costly from a geopolitical sense for the United States' influence in Africa. Right. I mean, uh, so you, the U.S. is clearly uh, caught in a bind here, even though it would admit that what they are uh, doing in Ukraine is majorly an issue. Uh, they seem to, their hands seem to be sort of bound, so to speak. Now, uh, we're running out of time, Stanley. So one final question uh, before we wind up. So by operating as Russia's proxy, the Wagner Group has given uh, Russia a wider geopolitical influence, as you pointed out, and also plausible deniability. Is the Wagner Group unique in this role in global strategic affairs or do other powers, such as the US, for instance, do they also have a private military companies like Wagner uh, performing similar roles for them outside their uh, sovereign boundaries? But yeah, of course. Uh, the United States has, uh, there are dozens of private military organizations in the United States who were deployed abroad. Uh, I think uh, PMCs were deployed in the first Gulf War and in the Iraq invasion, in the, in the Iraq, after the Iraq, Iraq invasion, which apparently, uh, uh, which began exactly 20 years ago, right, on March 20th, 2003, uh, there were uh, a number of private military organizations uh, deployed in Iraq. And because of uh, uh, the presence of a lot of private military organizations, they all came together, forming the Private Security Company Association of Iraq for better coordination among themselves. You know, And uh, uh, the U.S. defense secretaries, especially Bob Gates, continue to defend uh, uh, the deployment of private military companies in Iraq. And uh, those companies, at the peak of the uh, U.S. invasion, uh, I think in 2006, there were 100,000 private American mercenaries were deployed in Iraq. And they were immune to the Iraqi law. You know, the Iraqi uh, law enforcement agencies cannot prosecute them, take cases against them. Uh, so because of uh, the arrangement between the United States and uh, the Iraq post-Saddam Iraq government, so this is, uh, this is what great powers do. The United States has uh, dozens of uh, private military companies and they have deployed them uh, to, uh, you know, to faraway uh, regions protecting the interests of the state. In a sense, the Russians are also doing the same thing. Right. I think uh, this is a very gray area as far as international law is concerned. I mean, we don't really know who or what or how private military companies are regulated uh, they operate in this in-between zone uh, where nobody seems to have any kind of uh, way of extracting accountability from them for their actions, neither in the national space nor in the international space. This is something probably uh, international uh, regulatory organizations and countries will have to get together at some point to sort of think about. Thank you so much, Stanley, for sharing your thoughts and comments on this ongoing developing story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sambat. We'll continue the discussion. Thank you very much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. 
We'll see you soon.